cross comes in. White with the header. And here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain. Hi everyone, track and ball today with myself, Richard Whitehead. Today we've got a maverick on the podcast, a people's champion, a true entertainer. This guy has got bottomless energy and he's also got a passion for success. He's patriotic, hands of stone and a chin of steel. We have boxing greatness here. For some of you that don't know, he is definitely a Hall of Famer. He's got the key to Nottingham and an MBE from the Queen. He's a snake of the ring. Yes, we have Carl the Cobra Frotch on the show. How's it going, Carl? I'm good, thank you. You missed out the guns. I've got guns now, I'm heavy. Mate, you definitely haven't got guns. Mate, I've got the guns. You have got the guns. How's life treating you at the moment? Yeah, very good, thank you. Good to see you. And, um, what are you actually doing at the moment? What are you... Good, I was just about to say, good to see Mark Shardlow as well, my old mate from the BBC. Good well, to see old, one yes, definitely. <laughs> Behave. <laughs> looking well, uh, looking well, actually, to be honest. And uh, how's, how's lockdown treating you and the family? Yeah, everything's good, mate, no problems. You adapt, don't you? We have to, we've got to do what we've got to do to survive. Um, my kid is back at school now, so, you know, I'm, I'm working for Sky Sports. We My last show was... Um, what was it? Dillian White against Pavek in the rematch. That was quite a decent-ish fight. Decent card, good that? undercard. Yeah, enjoyed it. It was a good undercard as well. Um, I, I like the Cheeseman fight. I mean, that was a great fight. I don't know if you've seen Cheeseman fight a few times. Yeah, no. It, it's uh, it's, it's definitely in, a battler, isn't he? I've uh, yeah, been lucky enough to be um, yeah, in uh, Dillian's inner circle and he's, uh, he's a battler, right? Yeah, Dillian's a good fighter. I mean, he's... He's one of the prospects, or I say prospects, he's never fought for a world title, as he put. He's one of the heavyweights that has been waiting around and, and not quite had his chance yet to prove himself. Um, he needs a world title fight and he'll probably get one eventually, but after losing to Povetkin, he lost his WBC mandatory spot. He's won the rematch and he's still no closer to the title because um, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury are, are sort of lining up to fight each other. And um, How do you see that? Wait his time. How I don't see that fight. Yeah, I think I think it's a massive fight. It's a great fight. It's a fight that needs to happen for boxing, and you know, there's so much money involved. I think it will happen, but I think that Tyson Fury, at his best, is unbeatable at the minute at heavyweight. I don't think anyone could touch him. He's 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 so tall. He's six foot nine. He's 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 rangy, and he's heavy as well. But he's fast on his feet, and he's got fast hands. He's not a monster puncher, but. He's tough. We've seen him get flattened by um, Deontay Wilder, get up to, to, to draw, and then look what he did to him in the rematch. Absolutely hammered him. And um, although AJ is very capable and very good, a world champion in his own right, he lost to Ruiz. And that loss to Ruiz, for me, shows that he can be beaten. And, it, it, you know, people people will realise, especially Tyson Fury, they realise that, you know, AJ can be beat. He's... Um, he lost to Ruiz in a bad fight, really. I know he won the rematch, but the rematch was a was just a boxing lesson. And Ruiz, Ruiz really disgraced himself in that rematch. He came back a couple of stone heavier. He looked like he looked like Mister Blobby, didn't he? It was terrible what he did. Um, <laughs> and he should, and he when you when you look trend. at when when you look at those heavyweights as well, do you do you see a lot of heavyweights just going in for for the money? Do you see do you see the the passion? That the middleweights and the super middleweights have, or 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 do you feel that that some of the the fights are just 
kind of you can see it from when they actually enter the ring that ring that they've got no chance. Like the Ru- so, Ruiz, like you said. Yeah, well, Ruiz shocked everyone, didn't he? So, saw it saying he's got no chance, but he beat Anthony Joshua in the first fight. In the rematch, mm. I think he was partying too hard. He didn't take it that seriously. He earned a lot of money, and I think he was trying, he was enjoying it rather than take the game seriously. He actually looks in better shape now. Actually, I've seen clips of him since losing yeah. to AJ, and now I think he realizes that actually I've thrown away a massive opportunity there. But there's there's a ring of top heavyweights. You've got Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua. I think they're one and two. You've got Deontay Wilder who lost to to AJ. But you've got Daniel Dubois, Joe Joyce, you know, coming through the rankings. Let's not forget Dillian White. He's up there. And, you know, these these guys all really need to be fighting each other. And I think they're all serious. Them top four, top five, they're all serious about winning. They're all serious contenders. Uh, but I think the two top ones, I think Tyson Fury is so far ahead of all of them. It's close with AJ. AJ's got a chance. I'm not, I'm not going to say AJ hasn't got a chance because he has. He's big and strong. He knows how to fight. Olympic gold medalist, all that carry on. But Tyson Fury is a gypsy fighter. He's been fighting since he was born. He just, he's just so skillful. And he's got, you just never know what he's going to do. I don't think he knows what he's going to do. But he's hard to hit. He's tall. He's rangy. He's got fast hands. And he's awkward. Clever as well. Clever as and well, on top like. of all that, he gets inside your mind and absolutely destroys you before the first bell goes. And I, I know that how that feels like when I've got George Grovesy boy winding me up for three months. <laughs> <laughs> and going back to your career, Carl, so in, in 2002... Obviously, first professional fight, and I, I I was trawled through the internet looking for that, and uh, obviously at Michael Pinnock. What do you what do you remember about that first fight with Rob McCracken by his side and that big, heavy white T-shirt of his, and uh, a young looking Carl Foch? What was what was your memories from that in uh, York Hall? I, can, I think it was. I can remember it was in York Hall, Bethnal Green in London. I can remember being quite nervous. I was quite a nervous amateur, and I put these gloves on my hands. These 10-ounce Cleto Reyes, um, that's the brand of the glove, and they're full of horsehair. Well, they're not full of horsehair. There's a couple of horsehairs in there between the bits of leather. And I can remember putting the gloves on and thinking, these gloves cannot be right. These are too small. Like I could feel my knuckle, my, my bone on my chin. I was tapping it against my chin thinking, this has got to be a wind-up. But it, it turned out they were the gloves I had to wear for the fight. And I can remember just thinking, as soon as I land a shot, this is going to be fight over because... I know I punch hard anyway from sparring, but you wear big 16-ounce gloves. And even though the gloves in the amateurs are 10 ounces, they're just made different. There's more padding around the knuckle area. So the the, the jump-out memory of, of my pro debut against Michael Pennant back in, I think it was March 2002, um, the jump-out memory was the size of the gloves and how small they were and, and lack of padding and the fact that I was quite nervous as well. It's my professional debut. It's the first time I boxed with no, no top on and no head guard and small gloves, and I was thinking to myself, this is going to be brutal. And sure enough, when the bell went in round one, and I threw a double jab right-handed, I felt it crunch on on the eye socket of Michael Pinnock, and his eye opened up and started bleeding, and then I was throwing body shots, and I could feel my knuckles against his ribs. I was thinking to myself, oh, dear me, this is painful. But fair play to him, he was still there in round three, throwing punches back, still there in round four, and I just thought to myself... How is he taking this leather? I mean, Michael Pinnock, great fighter, lost more fights than he's won, but not very, very really gets stopped. I managed to stop him. But I tell you what, these these journeyman pros who are there really to lose early on in a in a professional's career. So, you know, for people that don't understand boxing, when when an amateur star turns professional, they fight people that really shouldn't be beating them, just to get them used to being in the pro ring. And some of these old pros that that have been around years, just journeymen, we'll call them. 
they are tough as old boots and you, you just can't hurt them. You can't put them over. You can't knock them out. And that's what Michael Pinnock was. Solid, proud man from Birmingham. Rob McCracken knew him quite well. And I can remember Rob having a chat with him. And he said, listen, I've told Michael to have a go. I've told him to put it on you and have a go because that's what you need. You need a bit of, you need to, you need to learn quick. You're 25 years old. You've been an amateur for a while. Because I got back into the amateurs quite late. But yeah, the pro debut was tough, mate. It was it was nerve wracking, but I got the job done, and, um, and yeah, I had a great career. Yeah, and and from that that early stage, it looked like, especially from the interview, that you looked at home in the in the professional setting, and you were obviously at that stage you were looking to pick off opponents, and you went on a run of fights, didn't you? It was like twenty six fights in a row that you won, mm. and then you came up against obviously Kessler. Can you, can you, um, because obviously we have a lot of um, success stories on, on Track and Ball podcasts and we also talk about having to come back from a loss or a failure. What was that like going into such a big fight and then, and then having to kind of reset, reassess what kind of fighter you are and then kind of go again? I was in a unique position when I lost to Kessler because... Before that fight, I entered a tournament called the Super 6 World Boxing Classic. So my first world title fight was in December 2008 against Jean Pascal. My first defence was against that guy behind me. I don't know if you can see him, but Jermaine Taylor. And that's Jermaine Taylor getting stopped in the 12th round, the final round of that, of that fight, which was my first defence. Jermaine Taylor, bad intentions. He was, he was the former undisputed middleweight champion. He beat Bernard Hopkins. I mean, what a talent. And Mark Shardlow... Who I can see there, he was he was a guy that made me feel at home when I was in Connecticut in the Foxwood Resort and Casino in Connecticut in the middle of nowhere in, in it was, I think it's North America. Um, Mark turned up with his camera and his, his dictaphone, and I, it felt like home. It felt great. I was because I was out there. I had no British television. My promoter at the time really struggled to get me on British TV. I think it was shown on the Sunday the next day, and they put adverts between every round. I mean. What a tragedy that was. That fight should have been aired on Sky Sports, on pay-per-view, or Definitely. you know, at least on terrestrial television and shown live, but it wasn't. Um, so that fight was paid, bought and paid for by Showtime, the American broadcaster. So that's why it was over in America, and that's why it wasn't being shown. I won my world title against Pascal on ITV, but then ITV shares prices dropped. Don't forget, I won a world title in the big financial crash in 2008. So... Even Anton Deck stopped earning money for a bit, and if they stop earning money, you know you're you know you're in trouble. So, and did you win your world title in uh, in Nottingham? Was that right? Nottingham at the Arena? Yeah, against Pascal, yeah. December two thousand eight. And my first defence, obviously, I was over in America. I just thought to myself, you know what? I'll take this fight because I fancy it. Jermaine Taylor, what a fighter! I thought he's going to be tough to beat, but he lost to he lost to a guy called Kelly Pavlik, and then he had a rematch with him. And I don't know if he got a draw. I can't remember how that one went, but it was two close fights. He lost the first one. Had the rematch, and then before he boxed me at his first, that was his second fight at super middleweight. So Jermaine Taylor stepped up from middle to super middle, and he just beat Jeff Lacey. Now people will remember Jeff Lacey because he's the guy that Joe Calzaghe beat and got loads of credit for. Joe Calzaghe smashed Jeff Lacey to bits, and everyone went, "Wow, that was an amazing performance." But actually, actually, not giving Joe Calzaghe stick for the sake of giving him stick, but Jeff Lacey was actually an overhyped fighter. He was overrated. And Jermaine Taylor beat him quite easily. So I thought, right, Taylor's just beat Jeff Lacey at super middle. But I'm not too concerned. I know it's going to be a tough fight because he's quicker than me. He's probably more skillful than me. But I'm a 12-round. I just, I just 12, 12 rounds, I break people down. I get into the face. 
I hurt them and I'm on them. And I always finish strong so I'm always fit. I don't cheat. I don't cut corners strong. in training. Yeah. So round 9, 10, 11 and 12, I'll get to you. You know, I wish I wish boxing was a 15 rounder. I reckon I'd have got to Andre Ward over 15 rounds. I really do. And that's a fight I lost. But to answer your question about Mikel Kessler, I entered the Super 6 World Boxing Classic. My first fight in that tournament was a guy called Andre Durrell that was in Nottingham. He just ran and held and tried to nick the fight off me. And he was very good, very skillful, very fast. A lot faster and a lot more skillful than me. But that's in the amateurs. In the professional game, you've got to be tough. You've got to be able to fight. And he was trying to run and hold and get through it. And I got to him. I landed more shots than him. I bullied him. I chucked him on the floor. Ragdolled him a little bit. And it was a close fight. It was awkward. It was horrible. But the right man won. And my next fight after that in the Super 6 was Mikhail Kessler. And that fight was over in Denmark, in Herning. And now that's, that's it's not Kessler's hometown because he, he was from Copenhagen. But the fact that it was in Denmark and you've got one of the judges, Tillerman, Roger Tillerman, one of the pocket judges. I mean, the close was fight against, against Kessler. It was a great fight, 12 rounds. And I could make excuses as well because I flew out there two days before, a day before the weigh-in actually, overweight because the volcanic ash cloud, the big volcanic Icelandic ash cloud, grounded all the planes. The fight was off. Nobody's fighting. And all of a sudden... The fight's back on two days before the fight. So I jumped on a plane that um, <clears throat> the Sowlands sent in. We flew below the ash cloud, apparently. Rob McCracken absolutely kicked himself because he's, he's scared of heights and we was, <laughs> we was literally looking at these trees all the way over the trees and then over the... It was really low. And it was quite funny, the landing, because it was quite windy. But I, I'm not scared to fly. I was enjoying myself. Rob McCracken was hating life. So we flew in a day before the weigh-in. I had to take weight off. I was tired, drained. I got in the ring. And to be honest, I'm fit and strong anyway. I'm conditioned. And I didn't lose because I was because I flew in late and because I was taking weight off and because I was drained. I lost because Mikel Kessler's a great fighter. I mean, that was a great fight. It was a 12-round grueler. And that was such an exciting fight to watch. And one I've watched back quite a few times. What a battle that was. I mean, if no one's ever seen Froch Kessler won, I'm asking them, go and watch it, because it was a great fight. And Mikel Kessler got his hand raised at the end of that fight, and he won. He won on points. I mean, it was a massive points decision, wide as you like. And if you watch the fight, it was close. If that fight would have been in England, it's a fight I could have probably won. But it was in Denmark. Like I said, no excuses. I thought I'd lost on the night. I didn't think I did enough to win. I felt flat from round two, three, because I took the weight off. The shots were hurting me. I was tired. But I hung in there for 12 rounds and, you know, Mikel Kessler retired after that fight. He was that badly injured. He had to have an operation on his muscle in his eye. He was tired. Uh, his hands were bruised. I mean, he broke my nose and cut my eye. My jaw was all over the place. I couldn't walk for a week. And I lost my title. I lost my WBC world title. I was devastated. But How did that feel? It felt terrible. I was the first time I've ever lost as a professional. But I think what took the sting off the blow was the fact that I was still in this tournament, the Super 6, and... It was three fights in the prelim stages. And if you get through to the semi-final, you've got the semi-final and then the final. I won the first one against Durrell. I lost against Kessler, but I knew my next fight was going to be against a guy called Arthur Abraham for my old old title. And I found that out within about a week because Kessler retired after our fight and then um, Arthur Abraham was my next opponent. And I just, I remember meeting Arthur Abraham on the press tour and shaking his hand. Now he knocks everybody out. He's tough. He's from Germany. Um, well he fights out of Germany anyway he's just a tough strong hard man and I can remember standing in front of him shaking his hand and saying hello to him and just thinking to myself you can't beat me you're not big enough you haven't got the reach you're not strong enough because I give him a little hard man handshake I crushed his hand I sized him up 
And I told myself, this guy cannot beat me up in a fight. It's physically impossible. Now, don't get me wrong, he's tough, he's strong, and he was all of these things. But I just lost to Kessler. I was charged. I was I was ready to take anybody on. And I got in the ring. We It ended up in um, in Finland because after what happened in Denmark, I said, listen, I'm not going to fight against against um, Abraham with the Sowlands promoting it on their home turf. So it took ages to negotiate and we ended up on neutral territory in Finland, minus 20 degrees, if you like, in the middle of nowhere. And I absolutely hammered him, battered him from round one to round 12. It was it was a full all-us victory, one of my best performances as a, as a boxing purist. That was a boxing masterclass. And was that, do you think, because of the lessons you learned from that loss and that, that situation where you say that obviously preparation wasn't really affected, but obviously ideally you wouldn't fly in for a fight two days before. Do you, no, th- do no, you no. think those lessons you learned from that loss then you took forwards into I think into it definitely helped. I think losing to Mikel Kester gave me a sense of desire and a sense of drive. Listen, how much do you want this? Okay, you've made a few quid, you're doing okay, but now you're not champion anymore. So what do you want to do? Do you want to just go in against Abraham and just make up the numbers and come home with no title? Or do you want to drive forward, smash... I didn't think of it as I'm beating Abraham. I thought of it, I'm beating mm. Callis Ireland. You know, that's the that's the promoter. Because he was Kester's promoter yeah. and he was Abraham's promoter. I thought, I can't have him jumping in the ring again, celebrating, shaking his head like a lunatic. Do you know what I mean? Looking like a man possessed, celebrating. It really wind me up, that did. Because Callis Ireland, I don't know if you know him as a character or if you've seen him a few times, he... He gets himself in some right states. I'm not going to give him any stick or, or, or tell people what he what he does, but he, he knows how to party and enjoy himself. <laughs> now, now, this guy, when he, when he jumped in the ring and, and, and celebrated, I can remember feeling sick and thinking, little little weasel, I'd like to go over there yeah. and drop the nut on him and and, mm. and do, some, do some horrible things to him. And, and that's not me being nasty and being a bad person, but I knew that he had the judges there. You know, I knew he got me over to Denmark late. I knew he tried everything he could to make Kessler have all the advantages. And I thought, I'm not having it in this in this fight against Abraham. So this fight ended up in Denmark. And it was all kind of on my terms as well because I got the ring entrance when I wanted it. I, we picked the judges, the referee. I said, listen, I said to him anyway, it's not going to matter about judges or referee because he ain't going to get near me. This guy's too small. And it happened that... Because boxing, boxing's a tough sport, mate. And it's not just getting in the ring and fighting. It's the actual promoting and the management and then the television companies. I got involved with all of that. When I signed into the Super 6 after after beating Jermaine Taylor, the contract with the Super 6 World Boxing Classic with Showtime was actually my limited company. I was the license I was the license holder for the TV rights, not my promoter at the time, who I, who I since got rid of. I, I held that, so I had to set up a limited company. I had to employ a lawyer. I had to go for all the contracts and get my license. And people, a lot of people don't know that, but... It's hard graft getting it right, yeah. and, it, and it's costly right? as well. And obviously, a lot of, a lot of energy. It's time consuming and it's mentally draining. But you have mm. to be a businessman. You know, Floyd Mayweather was the, the the maverick for showing people how to make money and not let the promoters make the money. Don't get me wrong. When I finished with my old promoter and I met up with Eddie Hearn, Eddie Hearn played his part because he got me back on Sky Sports and I had some I had some pay per views and I made some serious money. But you know, it is what it is. I always enjoyed boxing. I always loved it. But if you let somebody take your career and just you can get advantage took of you, I'm not going to mention any other promoters. I've not mentioned any names, but you have to look out for yourself in this sport. It's the vestige remains of the Wild West professional boxing. Mm. And it's it, getting seemed, better. it seems as though, mm, seems as though through your career you were learning lessons as you were going on as well. Obviously, with the loss from Kessler, 
obviously the the situation around TV rights with obviously 100%. Jermaine, Jermaine Taylor, and that made you smarter as a, and I've always always thought of you as a very smart person as well as a smart smart smart, smart sports person. <laughs> Thank you. Eventually, I'll get ta- it out. I'll right? take that, that as a compliment. But I did, <laughs> you know, I'm not stupid. I, I, I resat my English and maths. I didn't do very good at school. Then I went to Clarendon College. I did a business and finance course and MVQ level three, which is A levels. I then I then went back to um, education because since I turned pro, I, I studied at Loughborough University. I did a sports science and phys ed um, HND, and I enjoyed all that. So you know, I'm not stupid. And well, I know how to power. make money, and I know how to look after my money, and I've now got a, a real, real good property portfolio and business now doing new builds and stuff. So I've put my money into the place where it's probably the safest. I've got a diverse portfolio, you know. I've got a good pension, I've got good savings, but I've got properties, I've got property business, and on top of that, I work for Sky Sports, and you know, I, I play poker as well, semi-professional for my sins. And how did you get into poker then? How did that happen? Listen, mate, I grew up in pubs, so I learned to fight, I learned to play poker, and I'm pretty good at pool and darts as well. What about drinking? So, you any good at drinking? Yeah, I could drink a few Guinness. Couldn't you get the Guinness down there? I think everybody from Nottingham can drink. Yeah, I think they can, actually. But I've never been a big drinker, because I grew up in pubs. Like, I learned that people that are your friend one minute, they get drunk, and then they're not your friend. You know what I mean? And they start falling out of you and arguing. And I was 14, 15 when I got into my first pub. And I never used to was drink. Alcoholic, was it? And I, and and I've just I've been put off alcohol. My older brother, I won't go on about him, but my older brother was an alcoholic, a gambler. He's addicted to all the three sins. He used to he used to cocaine abuse, you know. And he's now seven years sober. So when you've when you've awesome. seen that well and you've grew up in pubs and you've you've been through that and you've been on that journey. This is while I was boxing. My brother was really bad, and I didn't realize until the end of my career how bad he was. But he's straight. He's sorted now, and he's, he's he was my best man at my wedding, and he's looking after all my. Um, He's the manager for all my properties, so he does a fantastic job for me. But um, yeah, back to the boxing. I beat I beat Abraham in that fight after losing to Kessler, and that put me in the position. Then I thought, right now I'm through to the semi final. That was three fights, three fights in the Super Six: Darrell, Kessler, Abraham. I beat Darrell, I beat Abraham, I lost to Kessler, but then I'm in the semi final, and then the final with Andre Ward. So semi final was. Um, Glenkoff Johnson, old road warrior. I mean, he was a tough, brutal force. I didn't think he'd ever be able to beat me unless he knocked me out. And he does that to people. He knocked out Roy Jones Jr., knocked out Antonio Tarver. He hit me on the chin with a shot that should have knocked anybody out. But don't forget, I'm the Cobra. I've got a grand <laughs> chin. I cannot be knocked out. You, you need That's a lump true. hammer. You need a lump hammer. It's and a knotting like chin, work. I reckon. I think I've got a bit of a chin like you. It needs testing, doesn't it? Let's have a little, let's have a little spark. <laughs> So anyway, Johnson hit me on the chin with a right hand and then just for good measure, he hit me with another one straight after. So I took two right-handers off him and I've got to be honest, my ear is still ringing, my jaw still aches and um, luckily I got through that fight and I won and I was just concentrating then on on the Andre Ward fight. And if I'm honest, I kind of talked myself out of the Andre Ward fight because he was so skillful, so tricky, so awkward and horrible. And he's a bit of a cheat as well. He ducks low, he holds on to you, he gets his head on your chest. And I knew that was going to be a hard fight. So from round one with Ward, which was the final of the Super Six, there was just no motivation really because I kind of knew. I watched what he did to Kessler. I watched him beat all his other opponents. I thought to myself, I'm not going to be able to hit this kid. He's too fast for me anyway. And as soon as you get near him, he's got this method of tying you up and getting his head on your chest. So that was an awkward, horrible night's work where I lost my titles, but I was really just glad to be out of the tournament 
out of away from America and back to back to British soil with a new promoter. I got rid of my old promoter during the semi-final of the Super Six, and I joined forces with Eddie Hearn. So my first fight with Eddie Hearn was actually Glenkov Johnson. Second fight was Andre Ward. But then we said, look, we need to get back to Britain. Get back on British soil, re-establish myself. Forget, I've lost to Ward. I didn't feel like I got beat up by Ward. I, I lost, I, I feel like I got pickpocketed. Someone's just stole my belts. Where's he gone? Because I didn't hurt me. He didn't hurt me and my hands weren't hurting. I didn't even feel like I'd been in a fight. It was one of them nights. But then I've got a new focus. Lucian Butte was the first fight back on British soil after being away for two, two and a half years. And this is an unbeaten kid from Canada who had the IBF world title. And Eddie Hearn said to me, listen, we don't need to fight Lucian Butte. We can fight a numpty. We'll fight a nobody. We'll fight a journeyman. You're due. You're due an easy fight. And I said, listen, Eddie, I've just lost my belt to Andre Ward. I can't get motivated for an easy fight. What's an easy fight going to do for me? I'm 33 years old. Right. I need a world title. Get Lucian Butte, but let's get him over to England. If you can get him over to England, I'll tell you something now. I guarantee you I'll smash him to bits. First of all, he looks like Mr. Bean, right? Anybody who looks like Mr. Bean ain't going to beat me. <laughs> secondly, secondly, I don't think he's fought anybody and beat him that convincingly. All right, he's got his wins. He was unbeaten in 33 or 34 fights, 29 knockouts. So this kid's unbeaten. Nobody thought I could beat Andre Ward except for me and my coach, Rob McCracken. I don't even think Eddie Hearn believed I could win. Sky Sports showed it. Adam Smith, who's my good friend now, he told me after I didn't think you could beat him. Nobody did. I got in there, and anyone who's not watched Froch Butte at the Nottingham Arena, which, by the way, was the best atmosphere I've ever boxed in front of. I boxed, and we, we, we was going to say this anyway on this podcast, but I boxed in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium. <laughs> You've not had you? not I don't, you? <laughs> never, I don't know if I've ever mentioned it before. But let me tell you now, that fight at Nottingham, for Lucian Butte fight, for the IBF title, that was the best atmosphere I've ever been involved in. I think there was probably 10,000 there. Closed how, arena. How important are the fans packed to you, to the Carl, as well? How important, how important are they? what? What's that? Are the fans to you? How important? Well, because of the way I fight and because of how I am, they're very important to me. They're not the same for everybody. But for me, home crowd advantage, a, a, a good vocal crowd with lots of energy, positive energy, I feed off that. Nervous as hell walking to the ring. Nervous. Ring walk, horrible. But it was no easy way out. Rocky Four theme tune. I got in there. As soon as that first bell went, the nerves are gone, which they always are. And I've got one thing on my mind, seek and destroy. And with Butte, to be honest, I boxed a bit of a stupid fight early on because I was just walking forward and he caught with some good counter right hands and left crosses from the southpaw position. He was walking me into shots, but I was walking through the shots and getting to him. He might hit me once or twice, but then I did him four, five, six times with heavy blows. Absolutely smashed him to bits, five rounds. I felt sorry for him, literally felt sorry for him. I absolutely battered him. And I became the IBF world champion. That's it. I'm back. I'm back. I'm back in the game. Back in business. Super six Sky behind, as well and Sky Sports. I mean fans. that that fight was a free to air fight. It was a, it was a cheap night for Sky. That was because they got a great fight for nothing, um, for pretty much nothing. But then that gave me that that mark time fight, which I then had against uh, what was his name? Come on, give me the name. Is it Yusuf Mack? Yusuf Mack. I think that was my yeah. And I, I folded him on off like a deck chair. I mean, he wasn't a bad fighter, to be honest. He'd just gone 12 rounds with a guy called Tavoris Cloud at light heavyweight. But he wasn't he wasn't at the races with the elite. So I, I gave him a bit of a spanking, body shot. Like I said, folded him in half like a deck chair, parked him up. He was gone. And that was my first easy fight for years. Since 2008, right up until 2012 when I fought Butte, Mac was my first steady fight. And it was a, it was a decent test on paper. 
but I hammered him. And then on from that, there, yeah, I beat Butte on Sky Sports. Then I just beat Mac easily. So that's it then. We're flying then. Mikel Kessler rematch. O2 Arena. Sky Sports pay-per-view. Cha-ching. Yeah. Show me the money. <laughs> where's Joe, where's money Joe McGuire? Where's Joe McGuire? I earned a few quid for that, yeah. That was on pay-per-view <laughs> on Sky. Listen, I've never been in boxing for the money. I've never been interested. I turned money down when I retired as well. Stupid money. But I thought, you know what? What's more important? Money you can't spend or your health or your kids or your or your passion and your your history. There's fighters, and I don't want to chuck Legacy, people under yeah. the bus, but there's, there's fighters that have one or two more fights, too many. And Carl Frampton at the weekend got beat up by a kid that wouldn't have been able to lace his boots. Um, Tony Bellew, you know, he beat David Hay, a real good friend of mine, David Hay. Beat him twice, battered him. But let's be honest, David Hay was a one-legged man. He shouldn't have been fighting. He had one more than me, though, Carl. Yeah, we've seen it with Ricky Hatton. <laughs> seen it with Ricky Hatton. We've seen Amir Khan get knocked out so many times. But people like Lennox Lewis, who retire on the top, he came a close call against Ke in, um, Klitschko in his last fight. He won, but it was close. He thought, you know what? My time has come, and he's retired. There's not many that get out of the top. I, reti I like to say that I retired from boxing. Boxing didn't retire me. I retired on my terms in front of 80,000 at Wembley, just in case you didn't know. Yeah. And that was, I was one, there, mate. I was there. That was one hell of a way. Yeah, I know you was. That was one hell of a way to exit the building. 80,000, mic drop, George Groves, flattened him, put his leg around Bang. his ear hole. And he needed, he needed flattening as well, let's be honest. But I've jumped the gun a bit there. The Kessler rematch was great. Got that one at the 0-2. That was probably the next best atmosphere from the arena when I fought Butte because there was 20,000 there. And that was a great fight as well. And I got, I almost got done in round 11. I walked into a right hand that sent my legs shaking. And um, I did the funny dance for a bit, but I recovered. And that was a great 12-round fight against a top, top man. Me and Mikel Kessler, we speak most weeks. I phoned him up three days ago because a guy called Glenn Johnson, who's played for Liverpool, is doing a bit of a, he's doing a social media thing and he's introduced me to him. So we're doing a little business thing with him. But Kessler's a real good friend of mine and, I can't wait till he comes to... He's coming to Nottingham, actually. He's going to stop at my house. We're going to go to the go to the bar. We're going to do a little meet and greet and a speak. It's nice when awesome. you can keep friendly. And me and Groves as well. Me and Groves are on talking terms. We get on all right now. You know, We'll never be best mates. He's not on the Christmas card list. But that's what boxing what is he does like? to what is, what is he like? And 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 how, how did... In that first fight, when he did kind of pull your strings a little bit, how did that affect you? Did you just want to knock his head off, or was it just like yeah? That was what's the problem. Shit trying to that was how the is, problem. How is he mate. relating to me? It was such an obnoxious little, and I'm, I'm being polite here. It was, it was, <laughs> a, it was a bad lad, and he wound me up into a frenzy. But that was that's what that was his game. That was his job, and and that's why in the first fight I struggled because I was trying to knock him out. And when, when you try and knock somebody out, and you're fighting on anger, uh, you know it's a bad emotion. It slows you down. It makes you load up. You open your arms up. You can see you're coming. In the rematch, it was all just logic. Just take my time. I've done the training. I'm better than him. I'll land the shot eventually, and I did. But I could do a whole. I've done a whole podcast on how my emotions are before the fight and how they are after, and what George Groves did in the first fight and how I got the better of him in the rematch. But to be honest, he went on after getting chinned at Wembley in front of 80,000. He went on to win a world title. So you've got to give him the guy's credit. You've yeah, got to give definitely. him his credit. You've got to admire that because he stuck with it and he went on to, to make a career in his own right for himself. You talked a lot about um, a fighter's mind there. What does it take to get into the ring know, knowing that it's not a fight, it's a war? What, is it, what? what does it take to get into the ring? Well, to be honest, I, I boxed since I was eight years old. 
I had a few years out from the age of 15 to, to like 19, three or four years out because my mum got a pub in Newark. I moved to Newark and didn't really enjoy the sport much at the new gym and I had a bit of time out. As soon as I come back to Nottingham, I got back into the gym just Didn't to get enjoy fit. Newark. And yeah, yeah. I mean, Carl Greaves was there. A guy called Carl Greaves. He's from Pickering. Who's still in the game now? Carl Greaves is. He looks after a few fighters. And just the club was like a long way from my from the bar, the pub we was in. And it was a little club in the middle of a field. And there was loads of travellers there nicking your bike and want to want to fight you after the after you beat them up in sparring. They want to beat you up outside. And I just didn't enjoy it. So I came out of the sport. Then I got back involved. But what I'm getting at is when you've boxed since you was eight years old. And you grew up in pubs, and I've had a lot of street fights. And my older brothers battered me from the age of about six to the age of sixteen. Big Lee, he used to beat me up. That's big brother's privilege, right? He beats me up. We both beat Wayne up. My younger brother, my younger brother's in bits. He's battered. <laughs> he's hard. He's hard as nails, but he don't fight Wayne. Um, so you know, when when you've been brought up like I had a rough upbringing, I did. I had quite a rough upbringing. My mum and dad split up when I was six years old, and I live with my dad um, for four or five years on my own before I then started secondary school. Then I moved in with my mum. But I learned from a very young age, and I'm not going to get the violin out now and expect anybody to feel sorry for me because it's made me the man I am. But I learned from a very young age that I have to be self-sufficient here. I've got to look after myself. And there'd be sometimes I'd go to bed starving. And there'd be times I'd get up and I'd think, where's my dad? And my dad wouldn't even be there. And I'd get myself off to school. And I was on my own a lot. And... When I was 11 years old and I, I started secondary school at Gedling Com, I moved in with my mum. And it, it was nice to get a hot meal put on the table and it was nice to be someone to care for you and look after. I kind of, there's a bit of a memory blank with what happened. From My mum and dad split up when I was six. And I've not had the, I've had a conversation with my mum and I've got a different story from my dad. But I was on my own from six to about 11 in colic in my dad's house. And I didn't really get looked after that well, to be honest. I was looking after myself a lot of the time. Um... And I've just, I just had quite a tough, a rough, tough, self, self-sufficient. I've had to preserve myself from a young age and realise that if this, if I don't do something, it don't get done. And if I've got to go out and and do something to to stop me from being hungry, and if that means if that means I've got to go and shoplift, I'll go and shoplift because I need to eat. And um, me and my older brother used to get up to a bit of mischief, nothing stupid, but it's just I think being like that as a kid up until like 11, 12 years old, then going into pubs. And pubs were rough and tough back then. I was scrapping at 12, 13 years old. Not big, heavy scraps and getting beat up and left in a piled heap of blood on the floor. But having, having pub brawls, me and my brother, and, you know, there'd be people on my side and people on the other side, and there'd be people drunk, and there'd be bar stools going about, and it'd be rough. And my mum would be knocking people out because she's a Geordie. <laughs> she, she can throw a good right hand. And I think when you've been through all that, when you start boxing and training and jumping in the ring through the ropes, it's all fair. You've got a pair of gloves on, you've got a gum shield to protect your teeth and the referee's there to, to say, hang on a minute, you can't throw the headbutt and you can't elbow and you can't hold on. So I've always enjoyed and found boxing quite easy. I've always enjoyed it. It's not easy, but I found it easy, if you know what I mean. I was always nervous, but I always enjoyed it. Because if I didn't enjoy it, I wouldn't do it. No one forced me to box. And I think that having that upbringing and that background and then and then being involved in boxing from eight years old, it was second nature to me. It is hard. You get punched in the face. It hurts. Of course it hurts. But you try not to get hit in the face. You know, I won two ABA titles as an amateur. I won a medal in the World Championships as well for England. So I wasn't I wasn't bad at fighting. I wasn't a bad boxer. Everyone thinks I'm just a grueler and I'm, a, I'm like tough and you can't knock me out. And you've said, said already I've got a granite chin. But you don't win two ABA titles and a World Championship bronze medal just on toughness and heart. You know, you've got to be able to fight and move and Skill. slip and slide 
and have a good jab. And I think I've showed it when I boxed Abraham that I can box. I've, throw, I've showed I can fight and tough it out against Kessler twice. And against Andre Ward, I showed I'm probably not quite skillful enough or quick enough to beat him at his own game. So maybe I should have got a bit rougher with him and believed in myself a little bit more. Even, even though I'd been a pro and been a world champion, won and lost, when I thought Andre Ward, when I boxed Andre Ward, I didn't quite believe in myself like I should have done. I got in there thinking, this guy's too quick. But you know, if I'd have gone on him from round one and put the pressure on him and backed him up and got the elbow in his face and punched him around the side of the back of the head when he was ducking low, maybe it would have been different because that fight was 115-113 on two scorecards. Now that means he beat me by one round. That's it, one round. So I know that I had the beating of him, but everything for a reason, right? George Grove said that every time I was fighting him. Everything for a reason. I learned so much. I learned so yeah, much, and that set me up. That set me up for the um, Lucian Butte fight. Mm. And definitely, mate, you weren't you weren't brought up with a silver spoon in your your mouth, and you were you've been very humble, and you're you're somebody that that the general community and all fans really relate to because you're obviously a Nottingham lad through and through, and you've been successful not just in the ring but outside the ring, and uh, and to know you is uh, obviously a great privilege as well. So thanks for your time today. We actually finish with ten quick questions, uh, Carl. Yeah, fine. So these quick questions, and these are random questions that I thought of um, a couple of months ago, and uh, some of the answers to these questions from athletes such as Chris Hoy have been quite funny. So first one's mm-hmm. track or ball. Track. track. You know why I say that? Because I'm so Ellen so White will not be happy. Yeah, you're a Forest fan as well, aren't you? Forest fan, but I'm so bad at football. I'd rather run around a track and do some athletics <laughs> or whatever, do some hurdles or jump into a What's pit your... sander. I can't be doing with that ball. They're hard, they're hard work. <laughs> <laughs> What's your greatest accomplishment in life so far? Greatest accomplishment? Well, it depends how you look at it. Obviously, becoming becoming a world champion, not once, but four times. But I've got three kiddies now, and you know I look at them yeah. every day. I'm really privileged and lucky because cause I'm retired, even though I'm, I keep myself busy. But like, I won't mention anybody's name, but there's people I know who don't see the kids. you know. And I know that I didn't see much of my dad and, and my mum when I was growing up, as I mentioned earlier. But I just spend every single day with my kids. I wake up every morning with my kid is, give them their breakfast. I'm like a slave, though, to three unreasonable dictators, by the way. But that's what happens when you appear. I'll say that. I'll just tell get, your missus that. Just get told <laughs> what to do. For, yeah, Carl's up for any jobs at home is your listen, slave. <laughs> I'm up every morning. I'm up every morning with my kid is. I feed them the breakfast. I make sure they brush the teeth. And I, I take them to school. I pick them up from school. I take Rocco to golf. I take my girls to gymnastics. I make them all box with me on the pads. I just spend all my time with my kiddies. I don't know where I'd be without them. Um, so my biggest Father's achievement Day's coming is having... up soon. No, exactly. <laughs> my biggest my biggest achievement is having three fantastic children that that love me more than I mean. I love them so much, but they tell me all the time, "Daddy, I love you. I love you so much," and that awesome. that just makes me That's feel great, so proud. Right? But mm. I've got my world titles as well. Don't worry about that. And I've got. Um, you know, I've got I've got them belts sitting in pride of place and that British title, that Lonsdale belt. I had a fantastic professional career and I never boxed and got into boxing to earn money no. or, or for the material things. And, and although I've got two Ferraris, I've got one parked up in storage, I've got one in my garage, I sometimes don't like driving my Ferrari because I feel like I'm showing off in that and people are all oh, up Ferrari. But I always wanted one. I always had that poster on the bedroom wall. And when I got to a position where I could afford it, I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy one. I'm going to treat myself. But... You know, I'm not flash. I'm very down to earth, very humble. Like everyone who knows me knows that. I'm not show off. 
But I do like the nice things in life, and I'm I'm privileged because yeah. I'm in a position oh, where I, I can where I can have nice things. But <laughs> best, what about I part that I part that Mercedes that I had for a few weeks in that spot, and then you when was it them sports awards? I mean, there was loads of spaces, and I stuck it in a disabled bay. And I, knew, and I thought, well, there's no one here. I'm running late for the sports awards. I gave you some proper shit. And then you pulled up, and I was like, oh no, Richard's pulled up. So anyway, my brother that uh, night put some tennis balls in the dashboard of my, in the front grill of my car. I didn't even know he'd done it. He'd stuck three <laughs> tennis balls in because he beat me last time. I was driving around with tennis balls in the front of my car for about a week. I didn't know there was, there was, wedged, in the front, there was wedged in the front grill. And I thought that was you. A <laughs> <laughs> next question, do you believe in ghosts? Ghosts? Um, I'm quite... I think I do. I think I do, yeah. Yeah, because I, I just yeah, like the spiritual world. I think there's definitely an energy and there's a spirit. There's an energy of spirits and I think that the pineal gland that's in the brain, that she's subconscious, that's been that's been calcified by all the fluoride that you're drinking in your tap water, by the way. You should stop drinking that stuff. I think that we're we're dulled down. We're 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 sort of turned against our spiritual awakening, and people don't like their governments and the the people in power don't want us to be switched onto our spiritual awakening. So I meditate once a week. I should meditate every day because it's so good, and I'm quite I'm getting deeper and deeper into my spirituality. I I was going to do this is about two months ago a thing called ayahuasca, and if you've not done ayahuasca, you don't know about it. Look it up. It's very interesting, but um. I think I'm going to do ayahuasca. that pretty soon. Yeah, look into that. Ayahuasca, look it up. But don't do it without what? any um, professionals with you. <laughs> can... what's, the, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your life? Biggest biggest risk? Risk, yeah. I've took some stupid money risks. Um, but I suppose... not a risk risk, is it? That... I suppose in terms of putting my life on the line, I did a 15,000 feet parachute jump in Cuba with the snidest outfit of parachute team you've ever seen. I mean, it was banned. It got banned about... With a canopy on your back. Listen, it got banned. It got banned three months later and somebody died as well. Unfortunately, somebody died. Someone dropped out of the sky and died. So I was strapped to this geezer. I was in the back of a plane and it was at 10,000 feet and it was like, okay, okay, bamos, bamos, like, let's go. And my brother was like, hang on a minute, because he was still drinking there and he was still on the gear. And, and Lee was like, can we go higher? Let's go higher. And he was like, no, 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 no. And then we said, look, come on. And we all rounded some money up, give him some extra money. This is in Cuba. He went up to 15,000 feet. So anyway, this guy strapped himself to me. He got his cross out. He was kissing his cross and crossing himself. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, my days. So that was probably the the, 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 the most stupidest, riskiest thing I've ever done because... It was in Cuba, which, you know, parts of Cuba, third world. The plane was ridiculous, barely got off the ground. And the equipment that we was using when we saw it on the ground and, and the way it was and the way that people, somebody died three months later. Doing that 15,000 feet parachute jump was probably the biggest, most stupidest risk I've ever taken. But that's that's leaving aside my sports motorbikes and stupid yeah, things definitely. I've done with cars. You know what I mean? Can you see Next question. Can you sing? No, absolutely not. And you know what? I'm, I'm gutted. I'm gutted that I can't sing because I play the guitar. I play the guitar. My son nice. plays it. And if I could sing, I'd so much more enjoy the guitar because you can play and you can sing. I've tried to sing. Johnny Cash. Absolutely murdered Johnny it. Johnny Cash. Would Johnny Terrible. Cash be your karaoke song if you could sing? Um, but I, I do sing. I get the guitar and I do a Johnny Cash number. I've got There's a guitar yeah. down there now looking at me, winking at me as if to say, play me, play me. <laughs> But I'm just not. I'm just not going to do it to myself. I'm not going to pick it up and give you a song. 
So to answer your question, no, I cannot yeah. sing. No. <laughs> when are you the happiest? I think you've already answered this. When I'm sat in my little cinema room with my three kiddies watching a film and I've got some popcorn, some bits of chocolate and we're watching a film, me and my kiddies. Nice. What's the silliest thing you've ever got upset about? Silliest thing I've ever got upset about? Hmm. I'm not sure, actually. I don't don't get upset that easily. I kind of take life... I take life in its stride now. I don't don't tend to get upset. You know what? You know, since... This might sound silly, but since the rematch with George Groves at Wembley... And winning that, but all the work I did with Chris Marshall and and, and the psychology yeah. stuff, the, the logic and the emotion and what the amygdala does in the brain, and how any response, any anything that happens to you in life, whether your kid drops drops his cereal bowl and you're running late for school and it's all smashed all over the floor, or whether you've you've run over a nail and you've got a flat tire in your car and you're running late, you can respond to that position emotionally or logically, and just because mm. of the 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 training I did with Chris Marshall, the the, the brain training and the the hypnosis he put, I feel like he hypnotised me. But I just relate to it, everything in life. So nothing really winds me up, nothing gets me upset. So I'm sure years ago. Is when people park oh. in disabled parking spaces. Really? Does that wind you up? <laughs> See, I don't know why that bothers you, because there's always in a Mercedes, space. Mercedes, yeah. There's always a spare wars. space. There's always a spare space. <laughs> so no, I, there's nothing, nothing jumps out to me that, that I've got upset about that's silly, to be honest, because... Now I've got three kiddies and they cause they like cause it. all sorts of chaos and problems. I just I just take it in my stride, mate. I never get wind up. Where do you see yourself in the next ten years? Probably still here where I am because I'm quite happy and um, I don't know. I'm, I enjoy broadcasting and working for Sky. Um, I enjoy doing what I'm doing. I enjoy I enjoy property development now because I'm building now. I'm not just I'm not just redeveloping stuff and renting it. Out. I'm actually doing new builds. So. Mm. You know, Aaron you know, Bailey Cole, actually is a local Cole, guy you know from Nottingham. If, Cole, Go on. Cole, you know if you're in the same place in 10 years' time, can you not burn all that stuff on a Sunday afternoon, please? Because I live quite close to you and I can smell it all. <laughs> did, that come up, did that come over to you, did it? <laughs> I should, I, you know what? I shouldn't have chucked them tyres on. Them tyres the tires on. on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Just, I interrupted you there. We're actually not, we're actually not burning tyres in, uh, in this <laughs> That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, so what was your question? I forgot what your question uh, was. Next ten years, where do you see yourself? Yeah, I'm quite happy where I am, mate. I've got no, I've got no long term goals apart from just expanding my my property business. And the only reason I want to expand my property business is just to keep living the life that I'm living, which is quite a humble yeah. one. But I want to be able to maintain it. My my young boy Rocco, he he recently passed his test to go to the high school in Nottingham, and it's a really hard test as well. And so many people told him he's going to fail, including one of the teachers at the school that he's with now, told him he won't pass the test. And I tell you what, when I found that out, I made sure I did the maths with him, the English. He went awesome. into that place. He had four hours at the high school. He did his English, his maths, his verbal reasoning. Then he did his interview and he absolutely smashed it and he got offered a place. So, you know, yeah. it's not cheap. I want, to put all three of my kids, I want to give all three of my kids a good education. So at least they're smart. I don't want them to be, I don't want them to be pof, posh and too overeducated. But I don't think there's any disadvantage to being smart. None. No, I can teach him how to be rough and tough and teach him how to box and play golf. He plays golf now. And, you know, he can be a rough kid out in the back there. We've got a paddock, we've got woods, and we, we burn fires and we've got rope swings and he falls out of trees and does all that. But I want him to be smart. I want him to have a good education yeah. and have a nice life. So that's all I want to do. I just want to keep providing for my family. We've got two more questions. Uh, last one. Um, last, oh. Uh, how would the penulti- you, the penultimate f- one. The penultimate, that's what I was trying to think <laughs> here. How would your friends best describe you? 
Oh, as a living legend, handsome, as a great. They even say I've got a great singing Wait voice as well, minute. so I know the lie. Wait a minute, I smell some BS here. <laughs> no, I think I'd like to think my friends would would describe me as an honest, loyal guy who's who's quite you know just high on life because there's no need. And, and, and listen, I've only got three or four friends as well, so you won't you won't take you long to ask them. <laughs> a man, a man with more friends than fingers is a foolish one. Let me tell you. Yeah. Like Count on one hand, my and the, friend. Uh, and the last one is, uh, what's your greatest fear? My greatest fear? Yeah. You know what? I, I always had a fear of heights, but when I did that 15,000 parachute jump, <laughs> I kind of thought, there's, no, there's nothing to worry about, really. <laughs> so my, my, my greatest fear, I don't know. Again, I'll just come back to my kiddies. I just want my kids to be to be happy and healthy and um, just, just be safe all the time. And the only thing that ever worries me when my head hits the pillow is if I'm not with them and I don't know where they are. Say, like, the, the two of, two of my, my girls have stopped at my nanny's house last night, stopped at their, their nanny, sorry, my mum's. And that's the only thing that worries me, my kids. But I think that's the same with most parents. It's a natural thing, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We're, we're born into this mad world and all we do is we give our life up for our kids. And then I think they leave you when they're about 16 or 18. They, they don't want to see you ever again. But I suppose Why that's life. Why now? Mine are eight and six. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> Carl, you're a star. Thanks for your time and some great messages no, pleasure. in there about Anytime. working hard, about being resilient, but also being who you are. And you definitely are that. So thanks for your time and you're a star. No, pleasure. Anytime, mate. Cross comes in. White with the header. And here comes Whitehead. It's gold for Great Britain. 